This is Maggie Jones in Natural Wonders. We will visit wetlands again today, this time with Aldo Leopold, writing in his classic book, A Sand County Almanac, published in 1949, not many months after his sudden death at age 60. He dedicated this book to my Estella. This is part two sketches here and there, the first part titled Wisconsin. I thank always the Aldo Leopold Foundation for permission to read this beautiful book. Every one of our senses comes into play when we are outside with the professor. And now, Marshland Elegy. A dawn wind stirs on the great marsh. With almost imperceptible slowness, it rolls a bank of fog across the wide morass. Like the white ghost of a glacier, the mists advance, riding over phalanxes of tamarack, sliding across bog meadows heavy with dew. A single silence hangs from horizon to horizon. Out of some far recess of the sky, a tinkling of little bells falls soft upon the listening land. Then again silence. Now comes a baying of some sweet-throated hound, soon the clamor of a responding pack, then a far clear blast of hunting horns out of the sky into the fog. High horns, low horns, silence, and finally a pandemonium of trumpets, rattles, croaks, and cries that almost shakes the bog with its nearness, but without yet disclosing whence it comes. At last a glint of sun reveals the approach of a great echelon of birds. On motionless wing they emerge from the lifting mist, sweep a final arc of sky and settle in clangorous descending spirals to their feeding grounds. A new day has begun on the crane marsh. A sense of time lies thick and heavy on such a place, Yearly since the Ice Age, it has awakened each spring to the clangor of cranes. The peat layers that comprise the bog are laid down in the basin of an ancient lake. The cranes stand, as it were, upon the sodden pages of their own history. These peats are the compressed remains of the mosses that clog the pools, of the tamaracks that spread over the moss, of the cranes that bugled over the tamaracks since the retreat of the ice sheet. An endless caravan of generations has built of its own bones this bridge into the future, this habitat where the oncoming host again may live and breed and die. To what end? Out on the bog, a crane gulping some luckless frog springs his ungangly hulk into the air and flails the morning sun with mighty wings. The tamaracks re-echo with his bugled certitude. He seems to know. Our ability to perceive quality in nature begins, as in art, with the pretty. It expands through successive stages of the beautiful to values as yet uncaptured by language. The quality of cranes lies, I think, in this higher gamut as yet beyond the reach of words. This much, though, can be said. 
Our appreciation of the crane grows with the slow unraveling of earthly history. His tribe, we now know, stems out of the remote Eocene. The other members of the fauna in which he originated are long since entombed within the hills. When we hear his call, we hear no mere bird. We hear the trumpet in the orchestra of evolution. He is the symbol of our untamable past, of that incredible sweep of millennia, which underlies and conditions the daily affairs of birds and men. And so they live and have their being, these cranes, not in the constricted present, but in the wider reaches of evolutionary time. Their annual return is the ticking of the geologic clock. Upon the place of their return, they confer a peculiar distinction. Amid the endless mediocrity of the commonplace, a crane marsh holds a paleontological patent of nobility, one in the march of eons and revocable only by shotgun. The sadness discernible in some marshes arises perhaps from their once having harbored cranes, now they stand humbled, adrift in history. Some sense of this quality in cranes seems to have been felt by sportsmen and ornithologists of all ages. Upon such quarry as this, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick loosed his gerfalcons. Upon such quarry as this, once swooped the hawks of Kublai Khan, Marco Polo tells us, he derives the highest amusement from sporting with gerfalcons and hawks. At Changanor, the Khan has a great palace surrounded by a fine plain where there are found cranes in great numbers. He causes millet and other grains to be sown in order that the birds may not want. Unquote. The ornithologist Bent Berg, seeing cranes as a boy upon the Swedish heaths, Forthwith made them his life work. He followed them to Africa and discovered their winter retreat on the White Nile. He says of his first encounter, It was a spectacle which eclipsed the flight of the Rolk in the thousand and one nights. Unquote. When the glacier came down out of the north, crunching hills and gouging valleys, some adventuring rampart of the ice climbed the Baraboo Hills and fell back into the outlet gorge of the Wisconsin River. The swollen waters backed up and formed a lake half as long as the state, bordered on the east by cliffs of ice and fed by the torrents that fell from melting mountains. The shorelines of this old lake are still visible. Its bottom is the bottom of the great marsh. The lake rose through the centuries, finally spilling over east of the Baraboo Range. There it cut a new channel for the river and thus drained itself. To the residual lagoons came the cranes, bugling the defeat of the retreating winter, summoning the on-creeping host of living things to their collective task of marsh building. Floating bogs of sphagnum moss clogged the lowered waters, filled them. Sedge and leatherleaf, tamarack and spruce, successively advanced over the bog, anchoring it by their root fabric, sucking out its water, making peat. The lagoons disappeared, but not the cranes. 
to the moss meadows that replaced the ancient waterways they returned each spring to dance and bugle and rear their gangling sorrel-colored young. These, albeit birds, are not properly called chicks, but colts. I cannot explain why. On some dewy June morning, watch them gamble over their ancestral pastures at the heels of the roan mare, and you will see for yourself. One year not long ago, a French trapper in buckskins pushed his canoe up one of the moss-clogged creeks that thread the great marsh. At this attempt to invade their miry stronghold, the cranes gave vent to loud and ribald laughter. A century or two later, Englishmen came in covered wagons. They chopped clearings in the timbered moraines that border the marsh, and in them planted corn and buckwheat. They did not intend, like the great Khan at Changanor, to feed the cranes, but the cranes do not question the intent of glaciers, emperors, or pioneers. They ate the grain, and when some irate farmer failed to concede their usufruct in his corn, they trumpeted a warning and sailed across the marsh to another farm. There was no alfalfa in those days, and the hill farms made poor hayland, especially in dry years. One dry year, someone set a fire in the tamaracks. The burn grew up quickly to blue joint grass, which, when cleared of dead trees, made a dependable hay meadow. After that, each August, men appeared to cut hay. In winter, after the cranes had gone south, they drove wagons over the frozen bogs and hauled the hay to their farms in the hills. Yearly, they plied the marsh with fire and axe, and in two short decades, hay meadows dotted the whole expanse. Each August, when the haymakers came to pitch their camps, singing and drinking and lashing their teams with whip and tongue, the cranes whinnied to their colts and retreated to the far fastnesses. Red shitepokes, the haymakers called them, from the rusty hue, which at that season often stains the battleship gray of crane plumage. After the hay was stacked, and the marsh again their own, the cranes returned to call down out of October skies the migrant flocks from Canada. Together they wheeled over the new-cut stubbles and raided the corn until frosts gave the signal for the winter exodus. These hay meadow days were the Arcadian age for marsh dwellers. Man and beast, plant and soil, lived on and with each other in mutual toleration to the mutual benefit of all. The marsh might have kept on producing hay and prairie chickens, deer and muskrat, crane music and cranberries forever. The new overlords did not understand this. They did not include soil, plants, or birds in their ideas of mutuality. The dividends of such a balanced economy were too modest. They envisaged farms not only around but in the marsh, an epidemic of ditch digging and land booming set in. The marsh was gridironed with drainage canals, speckled with new fields and farmsteads. The crops were poor and beset by frosts, to which the expensive ditches added an aftermath of debt. Farmers moved out. Peat beds dried, shrank, caught fire. Sun energy out of the Pleistocene shrouded the countryside in acrid smoke. 
No man raised his voice against the waste, only his nose against the smell. After a dry summer, not even the winter snows could extinguish the smoldering marsh. Great pockmarks were burned into field and meadow, the scars reaching down to the sands of the old lake peat covered these hundred centuries. Rank weeds sprang out of the ashes to be followed after a year or two by aspen scrub. The cranes were hard put, their numbers shrinking with the remnants of unburned meadow. For them, the song of the power shovel came near being an elegy. The high priests of progress knew nothing of cranes and cared less. What is a species more or less among engineers? What good is an undrained marsh anyhow? For a decade or two, crops grew poorer, fires deeper, wood fields larger, and cranes scarcer year by year. Only reflooding, it appeared, could keep the peat from burning. Meanwhile, cranberry growers had, by plugging drainage ditches, reflooded a few spots and obtained good yields. Distant politicians bugled about marginal land, overproduction, unemployment relief, conservation. Economists and planners came to look at the marsh. Surveyors, technicians, CCCs buzzed about. The counter-epidemic of reflooding set in. Government bought land, resettled farmers, plugged ditches wholesale. Slowly the bogs are re-wetting. The fire pox became ponds. Grass fires still burn, but they can no longer burn the wetted soil. All this, once the CCC camps were gone, was good for cranes, but not so the thickets of scrub popple that spread inexorably over the old burns, and still less the maze of new roads that inevitably follow governmental conservation. To build a road is so much simpler than to think of what the country really needs. A roadless marsh is seemingly as worthless to the alphabetical conservationist as an undrained one was to the empire builders. Solitude, the one natural resource still undowered of alphabets, is so far recognized as valuable only by ornithologists and cranes. Thus always does history, whether of marsh or marketplace, end in paradox. The ultimate value in these marshes is wildness, and the crane is wildness incarnate. But all conservation of wildness is self-defeating, for to cherish we must see and fondle, and when enough have seen and fondled, there is no wilderness left to cherish. Someday, perhaps, in the very process of our benefactions, perhaps in the fullness of geologic time, the last crane will trumpet his farewell and spiral skyward from the great marsh. High out of the clouds will fall the sound of hunting horns, the baying of the phantom pack, the tinkle of little bells, and then a silence never to be broken, unless perchance in some far pasture of the Milky Way. And that's the end of the Marshland Elegy. This is Maggie Jones reading from the Sand County Almanac. Thank you so much for listening.